0: Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby podcast. Don't you let me, don't you let me down. Today, I'm talking about my 31st newsletter. This was called, my sources are telling me this week was eventful. (laughs) It's a really bad name. (laughs) I think I'm going to change it. I'm going to do a post published change. I think I just want to call it Lunacy which makes more sense. Um, Whatever, my head was in the clouds when I was writing that subject line. It was, you know, it was about getting me across the finish line. But anyway, um, I'm really excited to bring on my really good friend Laura Bannister this week. I first met Laura probably two or three years ago when she wrote a piece for Man Repeller when I worked there about the reality TV star Gemma Collins, and the piece was so funny. I'm actually going to read a little clip of it in a second, but um, I remember Amelia, my colleague, and I were laughing so hard at this, and we were like, who is this girl that wrote it? So... I only worked with Laura probably a few more times uh, during my tenure at Mandarpeller, but we just became good friends outside of work, and she's an incredible writer. I love talking with her about writing and sharing good pieces of writing, but also just um, hanging out with her in New York because she's just a very fun and funny and wild person. So um, just to give you a little sneak peek into kind of Laura's brain, I'm going to read um a little chunk of the Gemma Collins story she wrote for Manor in 2018 so you can get a quick sense of who she is. In October 2017, brazen British reality television star Gemma Collins stood before a live audience at London's Wembley Arena, microphone in hand, peroxide-hued hair twirled into jaunty Sailor Moon buns, shiny tights glistening under all that spotlight and announced the BBC Radio 1 Teen Awards winner for the best TV show as Love Island to thundering applause. She pivoted to congratulate the victors, one arm outstretched in a victory punch toward the venue's ceiling, mouth upturned to reveal a set of chemically white teeth. And then, without warning, she fell through a gaping trapdoor. As the laws of gravity will have it, when a big trapdoor opens and you are above it, your entire body will descend rapidly into its black and unknown nadir, whether you like it or not. No one likes it. The plummet is always floundering and elegant. For a moment, you will look like an unfinished magic trick, half visible, half concealed. Your limbs will make desperate contortions to break the fall. Elbows, wrists, and feet will move into unnatural positions, searching frenziedly for some hard, flat surface, for familiar terrain. The trapdoor Collins fell through was more bewildering and blurring than other trapdoors because it was positioned before thousands of strangers and because it contained three contestants from the reality show Love Island, who were being propelled from its depths to receive their prize on stage. Their bodies became semi-entangled with Collins's, a maelstrom of figures, until two of them were able to pull her back up onto the stage. The scene was the funny-as-home video writ large, equal parts comical and traumatic. Fifteen years ago, if you fell through a trapdoor, only the people who saw it would know but this is the age of live television and the internet. Blooper footage circulated instantly online. The Daily Mail published an extensive commentary, as did other gossip websites. There were videos everywhere, covering infinite angles. I first saw this skit on Instagram and have since replayed it at least a hundred times, not because I wanted to see Collins humiliated, though falling into a hole is always very funny, but because I was fascinated by her response to it afterward. More on that soon. This initially may not have been a big deal to anyone outside the UK, accepting myself an idiot procrastinator who follows the minutia of Blighty's reality vortex with genuine enthusiasm but soon enough it was that was probably more than I needed to read but I'm just projecting my own desires onto you which is that I would want to listen to that entire story and I would be mad that I got cut off so <laughs> um, if you want to read the whole thing I have linked to it in the um, like the podcast notes/ slash email. There's actually a fair number of articles to link in this one because we talk a lot about, uh, well, we reference a lot of pieces, which is kind of central to my and Laura's friendship, which involves a lot of link sharing. Anyway, um, what you're about to hear is a conversation about Looney Tunes because Laura and I share an interest, so I thought she'd be the perfect person to weigh in. We talk a little bit about the election. We talk about whether art needs to be quote unquote relevant to the moment to be enjoyed. I think you can probably imagine our answers. And, um, also where we were during the 2016 election, which happened to be kind of funny and unexpected stories for both of us. So, uh, without further ado, this is Laura. Okay. You ready to start?
1: I'm ready to start. Hi, Laura. Hi, Haley. How are you? (laughs)
0: I'm good. I'm really excited to be inside your new apartment virtually.
1: Thank you. It is, it's quite good today. This street is really quiet and weird. I'm kind of on a police street. So oh. I do feel like a big, I do feel like a big knock just by living here, but it's quiet because they don't let anyone drive on it.
0: I live, I don't live near a police station, but I live near like some projects in bed and it's so upsetting how often there are cops just like milling around. And I'm like, what are it's- you guys doing? Like leave, go away. But there's just, yeah. it's like they created like a station without a station, just on the street, just waiting. It's fucked up.
1: I barely got to even move in here they just they have the police cars at the start of the street and they don't even want you to pass them and i had to ask permission to just pull a moving truck into my own new street dude no yeah. bad awesome.
0: vibes bad vibes um well i'm so excited to talk to you today i'm gonna introduce you before- about looney tunes <laughs> yeah about looney tunes about this past week which was kind of a crazy week Mm -hmm. It's been really a crazy month for you, too, on a personal level.
1: It has been a crazy month. I got my visa reapproved just prior to the election. Huge. Which is a thrill. Huge. (laughs) Are you so excited you get to stay in this beautiful country? I am. It's going to be my first time here without being under a Trump presidency. Wow. I know. Oh, my God. Wait, when did you move here again? Literally right after he got elected. At the start of 2017, I think, I was here. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I had my first call. I remember I had my first call with my visa lawyer um, the night after his election, and she just said the whole office was crying.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I was actually in Paris. I, do you remember me telling you about that trip I did to Europe by myself in 2016? I wrote about I it once. It. Okay. But um, it was supposed to be... So I had never been to Europe, and my ex and I were supposed to do this, like, trip. It was going to be like a 10 day trip where we went to like three different cities because neither of us had been. And we like booked this whole trip together. We like we did it like 10 months in advance or something. We were really excited. And then we broke up before the trip. Did you go solo without him? Yes. Yeah, so we both went solo. <laughs> Stop. I know. Can you imagine if we had like run into each other like on the on like the sign river and like we had wanted to get back together. No, we actually went
1: at different I mean, (laughs) were you staying at the same hotels and things? No, no, we ended up,
0: well, so I remember I rebooked mine to go later because like by the time the trip came up, I feel like I was still like too sad and I wasn't really like wanting to go on a trip by myself. Mm -hmm. But then I remember like I was coming up on the trip, the timer running out on when I could rebook it before I would, like, be too late. Like, it was, like, 24 hours before the flight. And my siblings convinced me, last minute, they're like, rebook it right now. Like, you're going to go on a trip by yourself to, like, to Europe. You're going to find yourself in
1: Paris.
0: (laughs) I know, the most obnoxious, like, narrative. But, so I rebooked it really quickly. And then I ended, he ended up going on his own. And then I went on my own, like, a month later. But... The problem was that it was during the 2016 presidential election. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I didn't have that good of a time on this trip, which I know is kind of like a spoiled conclusion, but it was just more that I felt really lonely, and it was like I was kind of trying to make meaning out of something that was... Like, beauty isn't, like, inherently meaningful to me. Like, just standing on a river and it being gorgeous, you can't force it
1: to no. to, to be you meaningful. you can Google that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can Google that, <laughs> You can Google
0: that. Yeah, and I felt like I was, like, in the in a wrong mental space, so I think I was more just disappointed with myself the whole time that I, like, wasn't having a more magical experience. Oh, my
1: goodness. Did you stay in hostels or hotels? Hostels. Okay, good. Yeah. Because I feel like at least with that, you're forcing yourself to meet new people, but I think an alone trip where you're just staying at hotels or Airbnbs when you're younger is kind of a waste. For because- sure. Because... Yeah, you're not really forcing any social interaction, although, obviously, I sound disgusting as an Australian person advocating for hostels, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, 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 I know You can you're... imagine, you can imagine young me. Oh, I, I can imagine. Gallanting.
0: hmm Um, mm-hmm. yeah, well, anyway, so when, tra- so I had gone to bed on election day, because, like, the time difference, and I woke up, like, assuming that Hillary would win, like, everybody, yeah. and I had a text from Avi that just said... I can't remember the exact words, but I remember it was, like, really staccato and sad. And it was just, like, Trump is president. I'm sorry. I was just, like... (laughs) I just remember being, like... I mean, horrified, of course. Crying, all that. But then I remember being really depressed and just wanting to come home. Because, like... I I remember everyone talking about that, like, New York's energy after that. Mm -hmm, And then there was mm -hmm. just this crazy, like, mass sadness. And despair. And I felt, like... Well, at least I want to be despairing like with my community and I felt like I I almost came home yeah as opposed to like tears outside the Eiffel Tower alone
1: (laughs) yeah I'm just like a horrible like novel no one wants to read but um, I found out I found out I was at this is going to also sound embarrassing but I was at a Gucci party in Sydney which was just (laughs) the stupidest thing to be at at the same time because I remember we were talking I was talking to someone and they were just, we found out that he'd won and they were like, oh my gosh, maybe he's really going to shake things up. And I was like, does anybody at this party really understand what's going to happen? And my, i my brother had just moved to New York and he was like, it's very miserable kind of vibe here. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I moving here right now? Yeah. yeah. I bet. I bet. Well, I remember the, the one like redeeming part of my story
0: was that I was so sad that Avi. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Oh, no, 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 no. Yep. This story. No, please interrupt away. Um, I was just going to say that Avi and I were just sort of like we weren't together at this point, but we were we had like we had kissed and like we had a thing going on. But like we were I remember on that trip was like the first time we said we missed each other. Remember when you like get to that point and it's like, whoa, we said it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. So we were like in this sort of in between area, but like kind of falling in love and not admitting it. And I said I was really sad and like wanted to come home and he gave me he facetimed me and told me i had i was up on the roof of the hostel and he gave me like this epic pep talk like this poetic long sprawling pep talk and it start i had been so sad and i just started laughing and he like he brought all this joy to the moment and the people who were on the roof overheard his pep talk and thought it was so funny that they started laughing and then we started talking and i like made friends with them and i ended up like spending the whole day with these people and amazing, it, and it was very—it was a very like sweet turn of events that I credited completely to Avi. I feel like this is why I was not good at traveling alone. Is like, whereas he would be,
1: I just didn't. It was harder for me to like reach out to strangers. I don't know. I, I mean, you also were supposed to take the trip with a boyfriend, so you probably were just not in the best mental state there. It's not like you really really booked the trip to be this independent experience at the start. You had to pivot to that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wonder if I'd be better at it now, because I feel like I like talking to strangers more now than I did at that time.
1: I think you'd be fabulous at it now. Yeah.
0: I feel like Mm. you would be a champ, though. Um, I do like traveling.
1: Oh, we had our trip to San Francisco, remember? Oh, yeah. You are fun to
0: travel. We were good travel buddies. We were good travel buddies. Um... Okay, well, let's talk about Looney Tunes, because when I told you that my newsletter was going to be at Looney Tunes, because you were like, what the hell are you going to write about this week? Which I was asking myself the same thing. This is a very strange week where it was, for me, I was like having so much trouble focusing, and I had no idea what I was going to write, and I decided on Looney Tunes because I'd really been wanting to write about Looney Tunes anyway, because Avi and I have been really getting into it. But when I told you I was gonna write about it, you said you loved Looney Tunes, which surprised me. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't surprise me because. Why would that surprise you? No, you're right. It doesn't, I just think it's such a random show. But, like, Hmm. of course, you you love it because you have very, like, um, eccentric and random tastes. (laughs) But can you tell me about your, like, Looney Tunes um, affection and, like, when it started and why you like it?
1: Well, I was just thinking before this call, I was trying to write out the things I liked about Looney Tunes. I made some notes because this was my first ever podcast. My first was what's the deal with Porky Pig. I could have just Googled what he actually does in the show, but I feel like I don't really know who he is or what he does there or what his purpose (laughs) is, but I do enjoy that kind of snackable six minute bite-sized content. I probably watched it in the same way as everyone else when I was younger, you know, just in front of the TV, like Saturday morning kind of cartoons. But in later life, I've fallen in love with it because I just do spend a lot of time watching terrible reality TV on YouTube between writing. And in between that, I just need a bit of a break, you know? Uh Uh-huh. I also, I mean, I really just love American cartoons in general. I think I love the Pink Panther. I love the old Betty Boop ones. And my favorites actually aren't Looney Tunes. They're the flasher ones that that I was linking you to. But I think, like, Looney Tunes, they do sort of act as this kind of weird moral mirror of America um and they can also obviously show like its ugliness and its racism like a lot of them were kind of crazy when they started um but I like the fact that Looney Tunes I mean the history of it I find really funny like essentially Looney Tunes was invented by Warner Brothers as a way to spruik something else it was like an ad for their music so they kind of I'm sure you learned this in your research but basically um they started doing cartoons in the 30s to kind of compete with Disney. And Disney had these things called silly symphonies. And so they made this thing called Looney Tunes as like a direct kind of competitor to it. And it was just a way to kind of promote their music when you were kind of talking about the orchestral backdrops and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cartoons were just there to really serve the music, which is such a weird thing to think about, because you usually think of like visuals first. But I guess that also does explain the kind of really rudimentary plot lines Um, because they're just really there to kind of show these like arcs, like these kind of like highs and lows of the music itself. Yeah. Like plot is secondary to that. Um, my other Looney Tunes memories are when I was younger, I was cleaning my room. Well, my dad brought two beanbags home. One was Mickey Mouse and one was Looney Tunes. And he told my brother and I that whoever cleaned our room first got to pick which beanbag they would get. (laughs) And I... I read books and faked cleaning, and then at the end tried to like throw it all under my bed really fast. And anyway, I lost, so I got Looney Tunes because my brother picked the other one, and I was absolutely devastated. I never really wanted to sit on it. I would always just go into my brother's room <laughs> and sit on the Disney one. And now it's very funny to me because I would pick Looney Tunes every time now. Like I wouldn't think it's particularly. I just don't feel like it's very on brand to like Disney, but Looney Tunes like does strike more of a chord with the characters.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think like Looney Tunes is. I mean, I'm glad you actually brought up the history because, or the founding of it, because I didn't read about that. I was focused a little bit more on Chuck Jones's era. So mm-hmm. I read a lot about, like, his career, and I, like, you know, I, I re-watched the documentary about him that I really liked. But I ended up wishing I'd gone back earlier, um, because I did miss that like, the, the racist past stuff, which I ended up adding an addendum to my newsletter after it went out, being like, Oh, like, here's an interesting piece that talks about, like, uh, they were called, like, the 11 Erased Episodes Mm -hmm. that stopped airing in 1968, Um, only one of which I think was Chuck Jones, which I was even surprised to see anything by Chuck Jones on that list, but, um, but yeah, I ended up kind of wishing I had gone even deeper, but what I intended to write about was just, like, my experience watching Looney Tunes now, and, like, Mm -hmm. the kind of, Nostalgia, or maybe the relief—the particular type of relief it brings right now, which is this idea that, like, um, well, not only is it like really creatively inspiring, like the stories are genuinely funny.
1: Yes, like they are. I
0: don't really like—I wouldn't say I'm like a super like adult animated. Like I don't watch that much animation as an adult. Hmm. Um, I mean, I love Miyazaki films, like Studio Ghibli films, but um, but I'm not like
1: rushing to the theater for like the
0: newest. Pixar movie or anything like that.
1: No, I never really liked movies where animals were the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Found, no, it was more actually, no, I, I do like cartoons, but I really hated movies where it was like, like, Free Willy or Lassie. I don't know. I, they just really annoyed me yeah. as a kid. Yeah. Um, but cartoons kind of like put it in this totally new framework. I think probably a lot of the cartoons that were the most racist have been banned but i think that that kind of jingoism and like the that's kind of baked into them because they're very much of the time and america's racist and people i mean i was actually one one thing that i wondered. i'm interested like you talked about this sweet spot of when looney tunes was really good this like chuck era and a lot of that i was kind of googling it a lot of that really straddles this like second world war and post-war era Mm -hmm. and And I was wondering if you noticed a lot of that wartime rhetoric, because that is when some of the kind of racism in the episodes came out. Like there's a couple that are like anti-Japanese and stuff. But but there's like this goofy episode, this goofy series that I'm really obsessed with called The Everyman Years, where he's given this like adult like form and a regular voice and he loses his stubble. You should look it up on YouTube. It's amazing. He's like framed as this stereotypical kind of family man with like vices and temptations. And every episode is about like social conformity and re-establishing it and um, aligning yourself to it. Not really, it's not really all about kind of like bucking social convention. It's just about like conformity and why it's great. And in one episode, Goofy's trying to quit smoking and he's chasing all these cravings in these really slapstick situations. And you know, he's trying to snip off the end of people's cigars or like chasing secondhand smoke. And then the whole message is that he could have been using the money to contribute to society buying war bonds.
0: It's oh, wow. very bizarre and
1: crazy, but I wondered if, I guess in Looney Tunes, if you'd noticed during that period, because it's kind of smack bang in the middle of, it's like depression and then it's straight into kind of like World War II. I was wondering if you noticed any of that stuff kind of like trickling through into the messaging or if it really did feel detached from it.
0: I don't know. I mean, I think that I was, so Chuck started in 38, his reign, mm-hmm. um, and then I feel like he really was hitting his stride in like the 50s. So yeah. I was watching her on that time, and I think um, the storylines that we've been watching are mostly been Coyote and Roadrunner, mm-hmm. and Bugs and Coyote. So these ones, these stories, they're so simple. I'm trying to think if there was, like, war imagery. I wasn't, I don't know. I would have to, like, go back and look for it. But I feel like what I was really, what what t- what I was taken by was just the fact that, like, the characters are... The characters are really consistent across the episodes and they're i think like the the confidence of the predators even though they fail like the continued mm-hmm. confidence there's no like there's not a character arc really for these characters and i think there's something satisfying about that because it's very it's very reliable and consistent you know
1: yeah there's no personal development <laughs> which is amazing to embrace you know
0: <laughs> yeah totally and it's like I don't know, I feel like when I'm watching it, it feels pretty irrelevant, in a way, to my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just reading an interesting piece in Harper's, actually, by someone named Garth Greenwell. Do you know who that is? I don't know who that is, but, um, or I didn't recognize his name. But it was about, Mm -hmm. like, whether, quote-unquote, relevance in art
1: should be given the weight it is. In terms of newsworthiness or relevance to your personal life?
0: I think newsworthiness, because, like, I think he said that, like, relevance has become a really important part of, like, art criticism, and people don't really qualify it anymore. They just say that, like, something's relevant or not. Mm-hmm. And he was... It was just sort of an, uh, an article that was, like, unpacking what that means and whether it's, like, useful as a primary, like, mode of analysis or lens. Or he thinks it's important, but he didn't think it was, like a stand-in for, like, the worth of an art completely.
1: I would agree with that. Yeah. Oh, you studied art, right? Um, I, yeah, I studied journalism and I majored in art history and theory. hmm
0: Did yeah. you talk a lot about relevance in your
1: studies? No, I don't think there was this feeling that it always had, that we always had to kind of, like, associate it back to a takeaway with the current situation or, like, to make it rhyme with whatever was happening in the zeitgeist. I don't think that was really a thing but then in media it obviously was and I do find like I'll pitch things sometimes and they just have no relevance to the world but it's just a it's just something that I'm interested in for some reason for, with no kind of reason why an editor is always just like you need to actually make this relevant to a reader you need to kind of like either compare it to you and how you are in the world right now or to like some kind of broader cultural context so that there's a reason we're reading it but I kind of do think you can just Read and enjoy things for the pleasure of that and we don't need to always kind of like force this message. I I feel like we don't really need to force the fact that they're relatable now because sometimes they're not, or sometimes it's kind of you're just like teasing out something that's not there, you know? Yeah. And like
0: you don't have to relate to something for it to be important. No. Yeah. Well what can you think of a pitch you've done that was (laughs) that that you got that feedback on? Um I feel like actually this is one of your biggest problems It is, it
1: really is Because <laughs> I feel like you're always running like really niche pitches by me Yeah, not off the top of my head I'm trying to think What would be a niche thing that I'd pitch to you? Um, oh god, it's Oh wait, you wanted to write a story about um, A George Clooney impersonator Oh, I did. I've never been able to make him newsworthy. It's really upsetting. (laughs) We did talk. We talked on Instagram for a bit, and I just couldn't crack why the hell I cared about him. Can you talk talk about him a little bit? Yeah, so I found this guy on Instagram. Well, someone, I think someone I'd gone on a Tinder date with once sent me, like, this guy and was like, you'll love him. And I think we only ever went on one date, but from that date, he knew I would like this George Clooney impersonator, which I did. So that was an incredible assessment of character. (laughs) But basically, he lives in New Jersey. He looks like quite a bit like George Clooney, but not exactly like it. And I just for a while got so obsessed with this idea of like what is happening to the lookalike business in the age of um, you know, in the age of kind of social media and filters where like people can kind of make them like there's kind of this new age of impersonators, you know, like there's so many kids who are like look like Ariana Grande and will like get paid or get bookings and people do cameos. Um, because they look like a celebrity. And I was like, what happens to these kind of really old school, like what happens to this guy who's like, you know, 55 years old, just like a married real estate guy from New Jersey, pretty sure he's a real estate guy, who just looks a lot like George Clooney. Like what's in the business for him now? Like, and I was wondering like what those talent agencies do. But yeah, I could, I had, you know, like those old school talent agencies like have they really? Are they selling them all in Cameo now? Also, what happens to George? What happens to George Clooney look like in the age of Corona where he can't appear at any like weird events or in any kind of. There's your relevance. Fake, <laughs> fake, spook, sp- fake spoof Nespresso ads. Like, what is he doing, you know? That was something that he did? Yeah, he did. Wait, <laughs> like, in like a. A Nespresso commercial. He, he was in a commercial for a different kind of. Home coffee brand or home coffee maker, and Nespresso actually sued them because they used a George Clooney lookalike.
0: Wait, did the- I didn't know that George Clooney did Nespresso commercials? Did he? Oh yeah,
1: yeah, very famously. I hate the name of this Nespresso. <laughs> to, just for the record, I hate saying it. Um. So I had to, uh, my plan was I wanted to go with him all around New York. I wanted to take him to Times Square. I wanted to take him to the Nespresso store. I had all these ideas of where I wanted to go with him and just see who recognized him. But yeah, like what was the point of it? I don't know. It was just something that I wanted to do and felt was important.
0: But those are some of my favorite stories, you know? Like they're like, if I think back, and I think this is an era of the internet that feels like it's really drifted or like Mm -hmm. gone. I mean, these these sites like have trouble surviving. But you know, I think about like some of Katie Weaver's early writing where like one of them was, she used to have. Was it for Gawker when she wrote about? She was, like, a food reviewer, a
1: restaurant reviewer? Yeah, when she went and did the endless appetizers for 24 hours. Oh, you at, mentioned
0: that one. Yeah, yeah, that one. At TGI Fridays, yeah. Yeah, but I was thinking of this time where they went to, um, like, a tenement house okay. that, like, serves... Because, you know, you can, you can go to those tenement houses in New York, and they will serve you, like, um, food, like, from that time, from the era of the home. Is that
1: part of, like, a tenement museum tour or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, Sorry. Okay. Yeah, tenement museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realize that there was a culinary aspect to the experience. There is. Amazing.
0: And she wrote a story <laughs> about it, and honestly, like, completely irrelevant story. Yes. The food... But that makes it the more important, timeless, also. <laughs> yeah, true. Maybe the opposite of relevance is timelessness. But mm-hmm. it was, like... It was just ridiculous. It was a wild ride. It was an interesting story, and it was really funny and I think that like there was an era of internet writing that was more open to irrelevance:
1: Yes, I feel like the need to kind of like make everything relevant to Trump or like the demise of america isn't isn't necessary um, It's easy to do <laughs> It is easy to do, but we can just enjoy things for what they are, but yeah those are, I think those are the things I most didn't you once say that my beat was like irrelevance or something? <laughs> I forget. <laughs> I was low key offended, but also like, wow, you've really captured it. <laughs> but I like these things that kind of sit outside of, um, that sit outside of this kind of idea of newsworthiness. They are just odd in and of themselves, and they're about kind of either people or things that are social outliers, and somehow they've kind of survived and continued to exist. Um, and people don't really care about them, and then I would like to write about them and make you care about them, you know? Yeah, and I think that yeah. these are the kinds of stories that,
0: for me at least, sometimes they're harder for me to, like, get going on. Mm-hmm. You know, like, maybe the headline doesn't grab me the topic, but mm-hmm. then once I read it or have read it, I'm, like, so happy I did. And I think this is probably the reason that it hasn't survived as, or isn't thriving as much in, like, the modern internet media landscape, because you need people to be drawn in by the headline and the topic, yeah. Um, like, and I think like m- this week's newsletter is a good example. Like, this was like one of my like least popular newsletters because <laughs> it was about Looney Tunes. Like, I don't think people give a shit about Looney Tunes. Welcome I'm- to
1: my career. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is such a which is such a shame, Laura, because you're like one of the best writers I know. But um, thank you. Yeah, it's like if <clears throat> at this point, like if if your piece doesn't like draw to I mean my piece did end up kind of drawing to a broader point but it wasn't until the very very end so I think people would have really had to stick it out which yeah. I'm not sure they did um, but I like to think that the people who
1: finished it maybe felt like they got something out of it <laughs> I mean if anything just to watch Looney Tunes and feel a bit better for some I mean I think that it can just also be I know you made this kind of bridge between that and what's happening right now but I think it can also just be like the pleasure of escapism without needing to kind of spell it out like that. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a hard left turn into the election. (laughs) I was like, how did I bring (laughs) it back? Because I think I wasn't really trying to say like there was... There was a big jump. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't trying to say that there was like... I wasn't trying to make like connections between political allegory and Looney Tunes, which actually would make a great essay and like is something I kind of want to go back and look for. But it was Mm -hmm. more just about like why am I drawn to these like really simple stories right now? And I think that there is something i think you know the reason i thought of looney tunes was while we were waiting on the election results and i was like on twitter in like on a new level just complete addiction level like out of control waking up at four in the morning checking twitter which is like funny because you know i had some ambivalence about this election or maybe like not ambivalence but cynicism and Mm -hmm. i wasn't one of those people who was like having a nervous breakdown um, mainly because I see a lot of similarities between Biden and Trump, policy-wise. Uh, yeah. Obviously, personality-wise, they're very different. But, um, but, and so, you know, I thought that I would be less of a wreck, but it turns out I was. <laughs> and I was just very anxious. And watching people draw us completely different conclusions from what happened, like, you know, half the people saying that not even half, it's just it's all splinters. So some people saying, oh like Biden wasn't didn't go far left enough, he didn't appeal to like these actual really popular progressive policies, and this is why the turnout wasn't as good as we expected. Or mm-hmm. like, oh, n- like Trump appealed more to people's material concerns, or oh no, everybody's even more racist than they were in 2016, and it was just about race, and it was just or it was just about uh poverty or like the economy, and just, everybody was so confident about their takeaways. And not even just saying, like, here's my takeaway, what do you think? But, like, here's the given, so let's talk about this. And then it's not even presented as, like, a topic of discussion. It's presented as, like, a given and then some, a jumping-off point for something else. And so then everybody's jumping off in different directions. There's not even any moment to, to coalesce around... Certain interpretations. Mm. It's too early to make certain interpretations. Then, um, not thought that, that stopped anybody, but it was just like for me, it's it shown a light on like what is so frustrating about this time, which is that no one is using the same logic or the same information to draw their conclusions, and it's just like this, this kind of chaos that I was getting relief from in the Looney Tunes universe, which is like very
1: consistent. Yeah, I th-
0: and has a very consistent logic. Yeah,
1: I think that formulaicness and like making good and evil into this binary without nuance is probably something that gave you comfort uh-huh. um, and also the evil in looney tunes is still a cute animal it's like still you know what I mean? slightly sympathetic it's, right yeah it's still like a farmyard animal who's like dastardly but sweet and you know they can't actually really hurt the good guy like there's something kind of comforting in it being benign um like dulled down yeah exactly
0: yeah, and yeah. it's sweet. Like I, or something I was thinking about. I we recently watched Austin Powers. Have you seen it? In like in like years? No, I haven't seen it in years. Okay, well there. I was only like half paying attention. Like Avi likes to put, ran, really random movies on when I'm like doing other things. Mm-hmm. So I only catch little bits and bites. But there are some parts of it that stood this, the test of time. One of which is I think one of the best scenes in cinema history, okay. <laughs> which is. Which is the gif I recently posted of Austin Powers doing, like, a 50-point turn in a really narrow hallway. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. In that little, like, golf cart or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Um, there is, I mean, the first time I saw that scene, I, I just really think I laughed till like, I cried, like, when I was in high school or whatever. But it's still so funny, and I think the part of the reason it's really funny is because he's completely undeterred. Like he, Like, he has so much enthusiasm for the turn. Like you know, he's doing the like turn, turn back on the mm-hmm. seat to look back, and then come forward really confidently, and then he keeps going back and forth, and there's no like frustration. He's just like, he's he has
1: so much confidence and enthusiasm, purely, and blithely, just happy in the impossible task. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I feel like some that's something I see a lot in Looney Tunes, also. Like these characters, they're 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 doomed to fail, but they like never lose their enthusiasm, and something about that is funny. It's really surprising. It's different from kind of the way that I think malevolent forces behave in the real world Mm -hmm. and it's satisfying it's just funny to watch like I feel like Looney Tunes really gets humor like it's genuinely it's for adults in some ways I think
1: it's definitely for adults for sure I wonder um who is your favorite Looney Tunes character Bugs Bunny through and through did you know I was reading a little bit about Bugs Bunny last night in my uh, podcast research and I read that um, he's kind of smart, alecky attitude And, you know, the way he nonchalantly Kind of dangles his carrot Is supposed to be like a cigar. They, The whole idea of it was that he would emulate The kind of Persona of Groucho Marx
0: Yes, I heard How that How funny is that? So funny yeah. yeah. There's some really funny, like, New York uh, References in some of the Bugs episodes Because he's supposed to be a New Yorker Mm-hmm
1: That's, that's why I think you actually might like Fleischer cartoons because they, it was this kind of cartoon studio that, it's a New York studio They used to be on like 1600 Broadway or something, but it was at this, they kind of like started as like a big competitor to Disney and it was this other animation studio and anyway, they did like Popeye and Betty Boop and a bunch of other characters, but their whole aesthetic was known as like the New York aesthetic of cartooning or something. Maybe i Wait, Fleischer, is that the name of the cartoon? Mm, it's the name of the kind of, it's like Disney Fleischer, you know, like it's the name of the branch of it. So it's all different okay. ones, but it's the one, remember I sent you that Bimbo's Initiation, that cartoon? Which Wait, is did like, you send this recently? I think, I think I sent it to you the other night. It's basically, we see this, it's like that character who, he walks down the street and then he drops into a um, manhole. And then there's this kind of clubhouse of this secret society there who chase him through all these scenes and ask, like, want to be a member? Want to be a member? And he's like, no. And then he (laughs) runs somewhere and it's really, really dark. Um, It's super surreal. There's, like, all these death traps and the whole kind of visuals has, like, this really nightmarish quality. But, yeah, they're they're basically, like, supposed to be part of this New York school that's kind of more dark and gritty and, like, the landscape is treated as this character that, like, encroaches on you and tricks you and traps you.
0: Um, oh, that sounds really fun! I gotta yeah. watch. Yeah, and
1: in some of the others, like a cemetery will come to life and like lock the characters in. So, being fascinated with death, I'm sure you'll enjoy facing it in cartoon form. You know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mm.
0: As someone, I mean, I would also say that one of your beats is like American Americana, really.
1: Americana, yeah. Yeah, but like kind of like dwindling old, weird. No, not really old. It's kind of like math. I do like things to do with mass American culture in the kind of tackiest, cheapest level. Yeah, I find like absolute pleasure in them because they were also new to me. Like, I'd never even been to America before I moved here. And I just remember, like, that first year, remember I went to Planet Hollywood once a month and I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> Can you talk about your fascination, please? <laughs> Why was, I don't know why, but I went there and I just felt. I think I went there before Halloween. I bought a Hollywood Halloween T-shirt. I was absolutely fascinated. I'd never seen somewhere kind of, like, so grotesque and sad with, like, the pretense of being so amazing, you know? Like, it's just, like, the worst museum in New York. Everything, you know, it's just... It's, like, got, like, Charlie Sheen's shirts in... <laughs> memorialised with, like, um, a little write-up next to them. And, like... Um, I think there's the converse of a random Playboy bunny. Just like really sad, <laughs> bad memorabilia. I used to ask the restaurant staff what things were and like every time a different answer. Um the food, tragic, so expensive, awful. I just love that there's like this whole area area that's supposed to be like the center of New York for tourists or whatever that's just absolute trash. Um Times Square. And <laughs> yeah, and I find those restaurants so fun and sad like i've spent so much money at them spent so much time at tgi fridays i used to when i first became single when i came out of like this eight-year relationship i started taking tinder dates to just chain restaurants um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i spent a lot of time at them and i would use them as like a way to kind of learn more about them because i was obviously writing about them a bit um so i would find out like a tinder date would be from ohio or something or wherever i'm probably not Ohio, but some random place and i'd be like okay tell me about your local chains you know what's the energy of them there what's the depressing history yeah
0: yeah i feel like most of these things are they're more they're relics of like the 90s right they're not they're not that much older because it's like i i think of them as being from a very particular uh type of like If you think of the 90s as, like, peak consumerism, Mm -hmm. like, where capitalism and, like, um, consumption was sort of embraced by, like, the mainstream current, like, these, like, flashiness and, like, colorful plastic commercials, like, this era was, like, an era of, like, optimism in American culture, and I think a lot of these grotesque places, like, came out of that era, right? Or they're, like, still hobbling along 20 years later.
1: Yeah, a lot of them... Like, Planet Hollywood has been through so many rounds of bankruptcy and you do wonder why people keep bankrolling it. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's a relic of, like, American optimism Yes, or yes. Right? A lot of them started in the 90s um, and were kind of started by these bro-ish white dudes who were like, you know what? I'm going to start a restaurant. It's about a restaurant. Um, who had just worked <laughs> in finance and never kind of done anything in that industry before. And so, I mean, Planet Hollywood was started... In, in, in opposition to Hard Rock Cafe. I can tell you the history of it if you really want. I remember from, I wrote an article about it obviously, but um, it was, Planet Hollywood was, the, the idea for it was like the brainchild of this kind of out of work actor who went to his agent or something who was also investing in um, restaurants at the time and he gave them the idea and they basically stole it but he wanted to call it something like Planet Holly Rock or something. Basically it would just be a ripoff of hard rock cafe with Hollywood memorabilia and everyone was kind of like jumping on this themed restaurant chain I remember when it launched there's like all this amazing weird footage on YouTube of like celebrities kind of like lining up there and they all had like fake stocks in it so that they could kind of just like smile and be on the runway there like on on launch night to pull people in but it was really this idea of I guess kind of similar to like SponCon stuff on Instagram like you put a famous person there and like they'll flock you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um Yeah, but those restaurants, I think, kind of started to fade when they're all kind of pricey, and then you could kind of get, you could, you could get better food at somewhere that felt less like, you know, an endless McDonald's, like a fancy kind of McDonald's replica place. You could get, like, better food somewhere for the same price, like, and there was, like, this kind of, like, advent of, like, ordering food in and stuff like that, but yeah, they basically all began to fail, but I think they all had, like, this period of crazy rapid expansion, too, like... Planet Hollywood overexpanded. They would they overexpanded. They would like. They were in Australia. They actually just recently opened a hotel in India in the last couple of years. But like they would just they had games. They were like all like they had a board game. They had, I think like a couple of hundred locations all over the world. And it was just kind of unnecessary, right? Like, what's someone in Queensland, Australia really gonna do at Planet Hollywood for the next few years? Well, 10 I mean years? you would have been not. there. I mean I would have been there. I think there was one near me in Sydney where I grew up that I went to once but otherwise all of these places just I don't know if they would have taken off at home but I was just fascinated by the fact that they still existed here obviously they're never really full of actual New Yorkers it's just like kind of tourists and like couples from the Midwest like weirdly a lot of young people at Planet Hollywood but just people who kind of like look at each other while like Justin Bieber's playing and don't say a word and just eat their pizza in silence you know, that's the whole vibe there. Yeah. If I think
0: about when Looney Tunes started getting, like, exploited for, like, commercials and, like, the... I mean, that was in the 90s, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was when, like... Um, sell out era, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was just... Yeah, you're right. It was a sellout era. But I feel like that's why I think it's better to go back a little bit to before it became this kind of large marketing beast that was being iterated upon with like space jam and like toys at mcdonald's and stuff i mean i'm sure it was like that before but there does feel like this era kind of mid-century when it was kind of purely trying to do one thing and it did it really well yeah i'm gonna jump forward in our conversation a few minutes just because there's some pretty intense construction going on outside laura's apartment um there's actually still a gentle chainsaw in the background of her audio for the next couple minutes but it goes away new york baby
1: what did you do on saturday Um, oh, I went, it was, I woke up with Leon, it was, um, we, I think his mom called and said the Biden had won, and then we were just kind of crazily checking, I don't think the Times had announced it yet, but then people started, you know, like, walloping on the streets, and then Oh my god, it was crazy. It was crazy. We went to Times Square, as you know, a place I love, had to just check it out, um, (laughs) and it was very moving. I actually cried there. But there was just like this moment where there was like a guy who'd obviously brought a speaker down, he was like blasting all these kind of like euphoric 70s songs and like it felt like this amazing, cheesy, like beautiful movie. like there was a woman holding a sign next to him saying like, "Long live democracy." And there was like <laughs> and it was really funny, but it was amazing as well. There was like a little girl dancing to him, and there was an old man, which, as you know, I'm like incredibly sentimental and just the idea of him kind of he was there alone the idea of him kind of waking up hearing the news and wandering down from his apartment to times square to like see if there were other people there and just stand it (laughs) made it honestly it broke my heart um but anyway yeah it was amazing and then we um i met people and had some drinks and then went to um washington square park at night which was also um lit that's nice yeah what did you do we went to well i i I
0: just, we found out in the morning, and we heard people screaming outside, um, mm-hmm. and we're in kind of, like, a quiet part of Bedstuy, so it was kind of surprising, I was like, is there, like, an event happening, like, like, for the election results, because it just yeah. sounded like it, there were a ton of people, but we're on, like, a quiet street, so I was confused, but, um, we met, we were already planning to, like, meet up with some friends in the park, so, um, I was with, like, Andy, Danny, Mary, and Steph, and Avi, obviously, and we, Met up in the in Prospect Park, and it was truly insane. It looked like a music festival. It looked like Coachella. Like, people were walking around, like, little tank tops and, like, neon skirts, and there was people with instruments. There was, like, a, a speaker and, like, a huge dance party happening at some point, which seemed like a... It was absolutely a super spreader event. <laughs> we tried to find, like, a, a clear area so that we could, like, sit with some distance between us. It was very... Um, it was... But it was fun. It was, like even though we was we were kind of, I don't know, even though I I had hedged my my celebration in a little bit with just, like, mm-hmm. you know, some of my cynicism, I found some space for, for joy. It really did, like, a happy day. It was so nice. I mean, I wrote this in my newsletter, but, like... It was really, it was actually really special. Yeah, me. like, yeah. public celebration just, it's been so long. I mean, like, the last time that I was in public with, like, a big group shouting things was, like all the protesting that's been happening and Mm. that does feel good too. Like, especially during such an alienating year, but you know, there's a sort of a uniting force of like anger in those times. And this just felt um, like more joyful. And it was just sort of, it made me realize it had been a long time since I felt that. And it was just regardless of the reason.
1: So nice. Yeah. How did, how
0: did Leon feel about everything? Was he like excited about,
1: Biden. Um, he's no, he's pretty apathetic about Biden. Um Yeah. He didn't think things would necessarily Oh sorry my notification to start work. You know, no. Um to take a vitamin. Oh I started taking I started taking vitamins. Wow, good for you. Hair skin nails, Trader Joe's. Good girl. Um, yeah. Um, no, I don't think he was like particularly thrilled by Biden, but he came to he came to Times Square and he was, like, enjoying the moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was excited Trump was gone, basically the same as everyone. Yeah. One thing One thing I thought was kind of, I don't know if you notice this, and I don't know also if this is just my total cynicism as, like, a foreigner or that I'm, like, kind of allergic to some of this, like, American sincerity, but the only thing that I found, like, quite funny about the Biden campaign right on the moment of winning was that moment... That was that video that they kind of immediately posted on his Twitter? Clearly made in advance by some ad agency. It was like this inspiring ad to unite America, and it's like really diverse. And there's a lot of people holding like photo frames over landscapes. And I just and there's like some kind of song about like America landed free kind of playing. And I just can't ever imagine a political party. I mean, political parties at home aren't particularly inspiring apart from the Greens. But I can't ever imagine a political party making this kind of film at home and not being ripped to pieces for it but somehow it was just people just allowed it and I that, was, <laughs> it, there's
0: like this particular rhetoric and I think actually this is what Trump did really well is he made fun of it mm. like you know Trump would be like at his speeches he would be like I'm not gonna he would imitate other politicians and come up in like a, and he'd make his body all stiff and make his voice lower and go like my fellow Americans and then everybody would laugh and he'd be like haha like that's not me I won't do that yeah, and I think that like that was, I mean, this was obviously Trump's strength.
1: Yeah, right. It was like p- p- separating himself from that, undermining the conventions of kind of politics and making himself be kind like posturing like an everyman kind of thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: And and so Biden, I think, like in an attempt, like his, you know, his whole campaign was that I'm not Trump. That was like that's his whole yeah. policy platform. Like name one Biden policy, but. Um, And so, of course, he takes the complete opposite approach, and he's, like, going for, like, the most... It's, like, this this alien form of speaking and communicating that, like, we've all accepted as politics. It's the same thing in, like, movies, you know? How people... I always think about, like, the the Hollywood workplace, like, how people talk in meetings. Like, Mm -hmm. you recognize it, and you're like, yes, this is a workplace that I've seen in movies, but, like, not, like, anything that actually exists in real life. (laughs) But you just start to, like, accept this world that's, like, completely unreal, and, like, Mm -hmm. because it's, like, imitating other art. Yeah. Um, I think that that politics is like that too. It's like people are comforted because they're like, oh, yes, here's like a robot man saying, my fellow Americans, like, let's join together. Mm -hmm. You know? Or like, I mean, you know, or you take like the newer version of it, which is like Kamala Harris putting she, her in her bio on Twitter. Yeah. Even though she like literally put trans women in men's prisons and has Mm -hmm. like done so much harm to the trans community. It's like, it's a perfect like embodiment of just like, modern identity politics, which is, like, often missing the picture of, like, actually helping these... helping the people they're purportedly trying to speak to.
1: Yeah, kind of tokenistic and, like, appropriates appropriates the community by, like, using some of the tools in, like, the way that causes them the least personal sacrifice. Right. Like, yeah. a she, her, and a bio. Yeah.
0: yeah. So it's, like, it's that plus they're taking a little of that, a little bit of, like, old school politics, and I I, I understand why it feels like a relief to some people, but... It's hard to not see the, uh, the kind of double edge, but I'm still, you know, I'm excited that like a lot of DSA, um, like smaller races were won Mm -hmm. and I'm excited at the idea of like having more, you know, progressive people in the, in Congress. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully we can, hopefully we can pull, pull the administration to the left. (sighs) Considering who actually like did the work in, in this election yeah. not fucking lincoln project
1: <laughs> but anyway um so Friday days ahead um <laughs> what a
0: wonderful <laughs> note to end on
1: yeah um
0: that's all folks <laughs> 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 no i am happy like not having to think about trump every fucking day of my life oh heaven fabulous heaven fabulous. When I feel my my cynicism, I I really do feel joy, joy at him being gone. I know.
1: Relegated to the sidelines a little bit.
0: Yeah, just a little bit. Even though, you know, there's like 70 million people out there that are ardent fans that cannot be
1: ignored, but... I know there's quite a wild New York Times piece, I forget if I sent it to you, but basically about, you know, Trump TV and how he's going to try and kind of cultivate this... Influence for a while, perhaps even the fact that he has more information than any other um Republican kind of president has before or candidate has before in terms of like about voters and their preferences. And so people might end up, I think the piece was speculating like there might be a time where people come to like Mar a Lago and like, um, how is that how you say it? Mar a Lago, yeah, Mm -hmm. um. But, like, that people might literally come there and, like, meet with him and pay to access some of this data about people. And that the kind of future candidates might almost have to be, like, blessed by him because he has this incredible sway over, like, so much of the Republican Party. So, I, I don't know. Oh,
0: God. I mean, it will be interesting yeah. to see how the next year goes because he also, he might be, like, in and out of court. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I read a, a New Yorker piece that was about basically, like, all these indictments that are coming Mm-hmm. Or maybe not in diamonds, but charges. Cases being built against him. Um, yeah. that like he basically has been having presidential immunity, and but now they're piling up. And so once he's out of office, he'll be in trouble.
1: I'm sure I feel like he doesn't really care that much about being president, and that's probably why he's uh, that's Why would he want reason. to? No, I just don't think he cares, but he also really doesn't want to go to jail. So it's really about <laughs> yeah, just keep maintaining that power and kind of like staving off. Um, Lawsuits, you know? Right. I mean, he also yeah. really doesn't want to lose.
0: He's. He, no. He, he hates losers. Like, he doesn't. Like, that's. He hates losers. He hates fucking losers. It's the, it's the, like the one thing he never wants to be. Then again, like, losing doesn't touch it. He, if he loses, he just says he won. It's as simple as that. And he'll do that. <laughs> He's already doing it this time. This is his whole personality. So, I'm not sure his ego will be, like, as bruised as people want it to be. He'll just go out um, crying fascism or whatever. <sighs>
1: Well, <laughs> well, it was wonderful. It truly was. It was. A lovely
0: first podcast experience. It was really nice to see you. Um, a treat, in fact. And we need to hang out ASAP before I leave. Where are you going? I'm going to Denver. I rented a house mm. with Andy and Avi um, so that we could like be with our family at like a distance for the month of December. Oh, that's
1: lovely. So nice.
0: Yeah, it will be really nice. I'm very... I'm very excited to just change things up a little bit. Yeah. Um but I need to see your new apartment although I guess that's not really possible for a while. Why? Because of the pandemic? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I can yeah, you probably can't come. Yeah. Well, you can see it via um Zoom. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Or I heard you gave, the gave me the tour. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, have a nice day at
1: work. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for getting my scattered opinions.
0: No, I love them, and maybe one day we can have you back on to just give us the full history of Planet Hollywood in, in more detail. That.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> With footnotes. <laughs> okay, bye Laura. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this recording. Okay. Bye. Stop in mind. Bye.
0: Okay, that's it for this week. If you'd like to stick around and hear an audio reading of my last newsletter, I'm going to do that right now. And if not, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Bye. Lunacy of Another Kind At some point over the summer, Avi discovered that HBO Max had all 31 seasons of the original Looney Tunes. We watched the first couple episodes semi-jokingly. We wanted to remember the characters and conjure the feeling of being 7 years old on a Saturday morning. But our ironic detachment quickly gave way to enthusiasm. Looney Tunes was hilarious, the animation outrageous, like nothing we'd seen in years, and the storylines even more so. That first night we watched something like 10 episodes, and ever since we started putting them on at random intervals, as a treat for completing a boring task, or to procrastinate, or just to cheer ourselves up. The episodes run around 6 minutes, which happens to be the perfect length for a cartoon, quibby notwithstanding. We've watched probably 40 or 50 now. The first episode of the original Looney Tunes debuted in 1931, and the last in 1987, although reboots and remakes persisted through the 90s. But there's a sweet spot, from 1938 to 1964, when the look of the characters, the way they move and interact, is most exemplary of what made Looney Tunes so special, at least to me. These are the episodes directed by Chuck Jones, an iconic and award winning animator whose style you might recognize even if you've never heard of him. Imagine Wild E. Coyote running off a cliff. Pausing in the air as his predicament dawns on him, his eyes bulging in alarm, feet scrambling in search of solid ground, before he plummets to the earth and disappears in a puff of smoke. In a documentary about Jones's influential work, Extremes and In-Betweens, people like John Lasseter, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Lauren Michaels, Robin Williams, and Roger Ebert weigh in on his genius and cite him as an unparalleled creative force. The Looney Tunes universe, populated by Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Elmer Fudd, Wile E. Coyote, and Roadrunner, and so many others, doesn't follow the same rules as ours. You could be blown up by dynamite and dust yourself off. You can unfold a piece of paper into a door then walk through it. Bodies can inflate like balloons or flatten like pancakes. Gravity pauses. It has a physics of its own, and it's always to one character's benefit and the other's peril. In its heyday, Looney Tunes, with its absurd animation, zany characters, and irreverent storylines, was the perfect ironic counterpart to the much more earnest and precious Disney. In Duck Amok, a 1953 episode Jones has cited as a favorite, Daffy argues with the person animating him, baiting them into racing parts of his body and manipulating the space around him. It's more fun to watch Looney Tunes as an adult, when you're seasoned enough to appreciate that kind of absurdity. The show is beautifully arted and scored, too, Often using abstract shapes and patterns as background imagery, and live orchestras for drama. Although impartial to bugs, some of the best episodes star Wiley Coyote chasing the Roadrunner. These episodes, always set in a Grand Canyon like rockscape, are without dialogue and feature the most insane tricks of the series. The schemes themselves are always ridiculous, like Coyote throwing a boulder onto the other side of a seesaw to try to catapult himself across a canyon where the Roadrunner is standing, but it's how they fail that it's hilarious. The boulder is so heavy it blows through the seesaw and the ground below it, creating a hole that the coyote then falls through. They never fail exactly how you think they're going to fail, and it always happens faster or slower than you expect. Fundamental to Looney Tunes is the fight between good and evil. Most often, one character is trying to catch and eat another using increasingly creative tricks. Most crucially, the prey always outsmarts the predator, everyone survives, and the character's motives persist from episode to episode. In this way, there is a satisfying and consistent logic to Looney Tunes, even as the details are delightfully unpredictable and unbound by physics. You know justice will prevail, you're just not sure how. There are plenty of reasons I could be drawn to a show like Looney Tunes right now. Nostalgia, distraction, and easy laugh. But this past week, as I watched the US election results unfold in the messiest way possible, I realized it was more than that. For all its lunacy, Looney Tunes is fun to watch because it understands something about human nature our desire to see justice served, and it exploits that by following a very simple formula. The roles are established, the stakes are understood, the outcome is satisfying. It's not without its chaos, but never so much that the logic of the world is undermined. Americans, meanwhile, can't seem to unite on a single idea. And what makes that particularly frustrating isn't the mere fact that we disagree. Opposition isn't inherently destructive, but that we are drawing conclusions using different information and different logic. Quote, well, one thing is clear, you can no longer deny that dot dot dot, says everyone on Twitter, followed by an exponentially growing array of conclusions that simply cannot be true at the same time. It's maddening to watch, and not just because it's discordant, but because it undermines the basis of human communication, which asks that we agree on certain facts and build from there. Imagine debating the Pythagorean theorem with someone who doesn't believe that 1 plus 1 equals 2, or that geometry is useful. When Wiley Coyote runs off a cliff, he's always going to fall. If he didn't, the fabric of the Looney Tunes' world would unravel. This is essentially what's happening in American politics. It's been happening for a long time, maybe all along, but it's never been so true as it is today. As the country endures overlapping crises, our attention infinitely splinters, and our institutions become increasingly governed by the uber-wealthy whose interests thrive on eroding solidarity, it's no wonder the world feels like it's falling apart. There's very little holding it together. I'm happy that it seems like Biden's going to win, and I believe he's done so fairly. But I don't believe the same could be said of the primary, nor do I believe he will adequately address most of the issues plaguing America. This combination of beliefs, which to me seem based in fact, puts me at odds with several groups of people who see themselves as similarly rational and moral. As much as we'd like to imagine our enemies are willingly cruel or ignorant, it's more likely they simply have a different definition of those words and see themselves as accordingly good. This I actually find comforting. Watching Trump supporters decry fascism in the wake of voting fraud accusations has served as an unexpected and welcome reminder that there remains a thread of commonality between us, however laughably remote. What we all want is truth and justice. If only we could agree on who, where, when, why, and how. Looney Tunes understands our most basic drive and satisfies it over and over. The perpetrator fails, or softens. The victim thrives. Justice is served not by punishing the bad guy in any long-term sense—they always survive another day, spirit intact—but by giving the good guy the last laugh. Perhaps this is satisfying because we understand the plight of the pursuer and the pursued, and just want everyone to be okay in the end. In that sense, no matter how absurd the details, each episode of Looney Tunes reveals a fundamental truth about its audience, making the series a perfect work of art.